Hello everyone, welcome to Wiggly Wiggler's podcast, bringing your garden to life, even though it's dark and dismal in November. What's on this week, Rich? Well, we've got all sorts of things this week, haven't we? We have indeed. You've got a couple of emails to talk about, haven't you? Yeah, I've got a couple of questions that I can yeah. talk through. Um, we're going to talk about can of worms and worm composting, Good. you and I. Jenny Steele's back in this week to talk about her two favourite books, which will be lovely. Farmer Phil, we brought him back in to see whether he actually takes over the farm. I think. Right. Yep. yep. Oh, he does, he does. So that's all right. We've got the competition. You can win a greener life. It's a book worth £25, and you just have to email an answer to me, and we'll tell you about that soon. But I think we'll start off with um, your emails, Rich. Okay. Well, I've got a bunch of questions. I picked two out, though, slightly different. The first one is from a guy who's grows plants for charity and uh, interesting enough he's lifted his blue plant pots he's looked at his plants and he seems to think that they're being eaten by something so having really scrutinized his plants to see if there are any slugs or snails or any other kind of beetle larvae or something on his on his plants he can't find any so he thought well i'll empty my plant pots and see what's inside so he empties mm. his plant pots and he's found anything up to sort of eight or ten worms dozen worms in his pots they're only three inch pots earthworms uh, composting worms oh. composting worms so Lucky him. He's kind of almost given the answers to himself when he's described a situation in, in this in this email that he sent us. But there are two reasons why they're there. They've either come up from underneath when yeah. they're looking for partially decomposed organic material to feed on, or he's used compost from his wormery and there are eggs in that compost ah. and they've hatched inside the pot. Yeah. And I think it is probably the latter. I think that there's a good chance that when he's potted up his plants, he's, he's mixed his nice bit of worm compost with some soil, and those eggs have hatched inside the pots. Because a lot of the worms, he says in there, are very, very small. Yeah. So I think there's every chance that that's happened. But, I mean, that's a good thing. It is a good thing. I don't think... He's obviously slightly concerned that these worms are responsible for eating his plants. <laughs> but that's not really the case. I don't it can't think, be it can't, the case, They're not no. going to be climbing up the stalks of his plants, feasting on the, on the new green leaves. Nope. There's a chance that, of course, when the leaves, if they fall off and hit the soil, and the, the worms might work at the top of the soil and eat the leaves, but they won't be eating the live plants. Definitely not. They're good because they're obviously going to be kind of aerating the soil that the plants are growing in. Yeah. So. I mean, this is a good story of worm eggs being in your pot plants, whereas we've got the New Zealand flatworm and the Australian flatworm that have come over in pot plants, and that was the eggs. Yeah. So completely different species, that's bad news. But this one... It's good news. It's great. Absolutely. So that's that. Now, the, the second question that I've got here, interestingly enough, is about somebody's asking whether they've got a wasp nest in the garden and whether, it whether they I should like move it. I like to know it. it's from. So I've got um, a picture in my mind. Yeah, this you is know. from Anne and if Robert. If it's from Isabel, then I know, you know... This is from... This is from uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is from Anne and, Anne and Richard. No, not Anne and Robert. Anne and Richard, strangely right. enough. Yep. Um, it doesn't say where they're from. Yeah. But they've got a large underground wasp nest in their back garden. Now, given that we're coming to the end of the year, wasp nest is only going to last a season. So those wasps will be dying out now, really. But they're asking whether or not they should move it. Now, there is a chance with wasp nests that those old nests sometimes are recolonised the following year by a new queen. Yeah, but where is it in the garden? Because well, it doesn't, who cares? doesn't say. It's, it just says it's underground in the back garden. So they, they're obviously the wasp nest perhaps has gone into an old mouse hole or something like that. Yeah. And started to excavate their hole and, you know, and then the colony's grown in there. She says it's large. I don't know how she's kind of realising it's large, but maybe because of the volume of wasps that they got. Yeah. But her concern is that a couple of the children have been stung already. Ah. So I wouldn't advise anybody trying to move a wasp nest. 
Wasps are quite aggressive. Uh, even if you try to move a wasp nest delicately, as I've done in the past, you still seem to get stung. Whilst they are ecologically significant and you don't really want to kind of kill them, I mean, they do tend to take hundreds of thousands of pest insects a year to feed their larvae. At the end of the year, really, that colony has kind of served its purpose, so you can ring up pest control, your local authorities' pest control, and they'll come and bump them off for, for 20 quid, probably. But really, now, at this time of year, if you leave that colony, they'll die out anyway. Right. But So the best thing to do is probably leave it till they've died out and then dig it up and destroy it when there's no harm, and then they won't be able to recolonise it anyway. But if it's in a, an unimportant area... They do a lot of good, don't they? I mean, they're, they're Best, a meat-eating can, they are. bee, aren't they? They're meat-eating, well, wasps. <laughs> no, they're not bees. As opposed to bees that tend to feed their, their larvae on <laughs> uh, on pollen and nectar, they like to feed their young on grubs, so, you know, all sorts of things, including caterpillars. You can sometimes see wasps on your cabbages taking the, the caterpillars off your cabbages to take them back to the colony. Good old boys. Yeah, so they are really useful, but sometimes, you know, if the nest is in the wrong place, it can be dangerous. But if they're not in the wrong place, then they are perfectly safe. Interestingly enough, we've got a hornet's nest here in the Wiggly Garden, haven't we? We have. And we're going to great lengths to leave that where it is. Well, we've told Pip not to get it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> that was a great length. To, yeah, that's right. So yeah, if you've got a wasp nest in the garden and it's in an area that isn't going to be interfered with and you're not going to come into contact with those wasps, then you know, try and leave them there. Yeah. But if they're in a situation where they're potentially dangerous, then you know, you've got to kind of weigh up the odds. Mm. Okay, um, we're going to go on to talk about worm composting. We get lots of questions about worm composting and actually it was one of the things that the company was founded on really. So we'll go right back to our roots and have a chat about can of worms, which is the easiest worm composter to describe that I can possibly think of. Yeah. And what it does and, and how it works. Yeah. Have you set one up, Rich? Uh, I've set one up lots of times now. They're fantastic wormeries, aren't they? Probably one of the most efficient types of wormeries that you can get. Yeah, I mean, the idea is that it's a, a wormery to actually recycle your kitchen waste yeah. rather than anything else. Yeah. So yeah. in the setting of a home, it's one of the best ways of composting that I've ever come across. Yeah. Because you get access to the compost so easy. Yeah. Can you describe it? In case yeah. anybody hasn't got well, any... Well, a wormery, I, we, I think we, we tend to sell to two main types of wormery, don't we? One's a worm factory and there's a can of worms. And the can of worms is just like a, a multiple layer of containers, in effect, with like sieved grids, I suppose, that sit one on top of the other quite perfectly. You have a three-tiered system and you have a sump at the bottom. Yeah. And the sump collects all that lovely liquid plant food. Yeah. Because, you know, you can imagine that pretty much all the green waste that you put in there is something like 85% moisture. Yeah. So as soon as it's consumed by the worms, it gets passed as a liquid passes down through and you can collect that siphon it off and use it to water your, your house plants or your you know your tomatoes or your garden equally but it's not just liquid is it not just liquid what you need to try and do is when you're feeding the worms because in effect everything you put in there is being eaten by the worms that's what you're getting the end product has been through a worm the fibrous compost that you're generating in there is generally it, it comes from some of the more woody material and some of the fibrous dry fibrous waste that you're putting in like the cardboard and newspaper yeah but you can get, like you say, it's these kits are really designed for your kitchen waste, but the household waste. You can put your egg cartons in there, toilet roll holders, rip them up, scrunch them up, chuck them in. But also things like the contents of your hoover bag. People are often amazed by the fact yeah. that you can put in the, the rancid waste that's in your hoover bag. But of course it's like lots and lots of juicy things in there, you know, dust particles and hair and all those great things that worms like to feed on. Dog hair they like. Dog hair. They just like a nice buried diet, don't they? Yeah. And they like plenty of fibre in their diet, like us. You know? They do, so. and the the great thing is that the uh, that they reduce the volume of waste, so you end up with a worm cast, which is worm poo, isn't it? Really? Worm poo, yeah. But sure. it, it's black and it's very rich. 
Using the trays mean that as the worms work their way up, you can take the compost from the bottom without disturbing them. And often that's the problem when you're trying to deal with worms domestically is when you try and harvest the compost, you affect the worms. So that's they right, that's right. Well, the old wormer is they used to have to kind of put a tarpaulin on the lawn, launch the contents of your composter across the tarpaulin, pick all the worms out, put those back in your composter, and then transfer that compost to the garden. But of course, that really does disturb the worms, and you lose pretty much all your worm eggs in the process as well. With this kit, it's designed in such a way that you can bring the bottom tray the compost that's ready for harvest into the top and then you can expose it to daylight and because of course the worms are very photosensitive they'll wiggle their way down through the tray into the next tray and then you can just transfer your compost to the garden don't lose any worms and it's the whole process takes probably a couple of hours while you're messing around in the garden anyway what sort of worms are we using well we use two types of worms don't we reds and dendrobenas and that's purely because they have slightly different preferences over what they eat the one species prefers dry fibrous material like your paper and cardboard and the other prefers the green waste so what you're doing by introducing those two different species is making sure that you've got a a nice environment that's suitable to both species but also you're able to get rid of much greater variety of the waste that you create in the house what about you know is there any worry about keeping worms in in such a small area no i don't think so what you're doing i mean like you say in effect you're kind of harnessing a natural phenomenon but they'll breed according to how much waste you're you're adding so the, the population density is really governed by the size of the kit and also the amount of waste that you're adding so more waste and more worms that you, you won't get too many in there and you won't get sometimes you'll get less worms in there say if you've gone on holiday for six months you might come back and the worms will be few and far between but that's how it works how much do they eat the, these, the worms that we use are, are capable of eating half their body weight a day so oh. that's a considerable amount so if you imagine you've got what say a kilo of worms in your kit then in theory you should be able to get rid of a, a half a kilo of waste a day but obviously that's when everything's working as it should you know kind of optimum efficiency their metabolic rate, again, is governed by temperature. What about you know? the winter, then? Yeah, the winter, they'll, they'll still feed, but the best thing to do is to try and afford that kit a little bit of protection. So either put some fleece around there or some hessian or some carpet, or if you can, transfer to the greenhouse, say. And that just keeps the worms working. They like temperatures between 4 and 35 degrees. Yeah. Uh, anything either side of that, like us, a bit difficult to cope with. Mm. What you will find, if the kit's been subjected to frosts for, for long periods of time, the worms will go into the centre of the kit and form like a hard core. Mm. And obviously their main priority is trying to keep alive. Yeah. So they won't be eating as, as much waste as they could. But, I mean, worms are completely natural composters, aren't they? So they're actually composting all over the world. They are. Well, worms are decomposers, so they, they occur naturally. And the species we use are amongst several species that are indigenous to the UK. 27, um, Monty said. 27? Of course, mm. they're not, isn't it? Yeah, so even if they escape, they're not going to do any harm. Um, but, I mean, red worms are classic. They're the kind of little red worms that you'll find if you lift up rotten log in your garden, say, yep. see little wormies underneath. Those are red worms. Dendrobenas you'll find in things like... You know, in compost heaps, naturally occurring in compost heaps. I remember as a kid going fishing down to this lake in, in Herefordshire again, and we used to go down to this compost heap, never used to take bait with us, and go rummaging in the compost heap, which, strangely enough, was made up completely of grass cones, nothing else, Good just Lord. grass cones. And we used to take some of the worms, we used to call them bradlings, very similar to dendrobenas, or yeah. people call them tiger worms. We used to get those and go perch fishing with those, and they are fantastic for fishing as well. Was it your compost heap, Richard? No, no, it wasn't my compost heap. <laughs> It was at the end of these huge grounds, these kind of old hospital lawns, and the old gardener used to mow these and then chuck all the, the, the clippings over this lovely walled garden. And we used to go and, and raid the compost heap. Sounds lovely. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a good thing to have.
some people even have these wormers in their in their houses, don't they? Yeah, yeah I think that's a bit extreme, don't you? Yeah, it might be a bit extreme, but of course, the beauty of these kits is they are odorless because when, as soon as the stuff starts to decompose, yeah, the worms will start to eat it, and of course, it's a bacteria associated with the decomposition process that smell. Yeah, I, I would have it in the cellar. You could have it in the cellar. Interesting enough, though, it's sometimes a good idea to have the kit where it's going to be exposed to daylight for a period during the day, purely because. The worms are quite adventurous, aren't they? Yeah. And people have said they've put them in dark garages. When you start it off, they are. Yeah, well, yeah, they are. And they, but they do sometimes, if you put them in dark places you know, for any real length of time, then sometimes they'll try and leave the kid. Mm. We've got lots of kits that are in sheds and garages, but I have heard that carbon monoxide can have a detrimental effect on them. So to me, it's absolutely fine to keep them outside, isn't it? It is, yeah. Yeah, no I'd keep it outside, and if it were me, try and cover it up in the worst extremes of the English winters. Yeah, we've got some in Shetland, you know. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. That's yeah. a long way up. Yeah. That's a bit chilly. And they're, they're all over the world. I mean, America, New Zealand, Japan, Australia, France, yeah. Germany, Holland, you know, you name it. Yeah. Worms are composting. That's interesting, isn't it? I mean, wigglers sell a can of worms every day, don't we? Yeah, we do. Yeah. You know, they get distributed to local authorities and schools as well as individuals that just Good buy them. in schools because you can see what's going on in each tray. Yeah. They're a really good environment education resource. You can take them between classrooms because of course they'll pick up, you know, they'll they'll divide quite easily. Mm. And uh, and it it's just gives the kids a, a chance to see what's going it, on. Because when could. you take them to your talks, ooh, yeah. they're difficult uh, to... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, last time I went to a talk, I took this can of worms with me and struggled and ended up getting covered in shmi. <laughs> so I shall take a sack truck with me next Definitely. time. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. Right, we must move on because any minute now we've got Jenny Steele coming in with the book review. Oh, brilliant. That'll be good. Looking forward to that. Yep. It's lovely to have Jenny back to do our book review this week, Rich. It is nice, yeah. Nice to see you, Jenny. Thank you. Well, it saves you having to read yet another book, I guess. It does, it, it does. Well, <laughs> also, I mean, Rich <coughs> can only review books under £5, Jenny. <laughs> Why is that? Well, because he won't buy any more. Oh, yeah, I so. see. Yeah, yeah, it yeah, limits so. us. It certainly does. In fact, it <laughs> limits you just to my books. Totally. Well, <laughs> as I said, the first two weeks... We only had books by Jenny. And we decided that we were probably going to stick to that, just yeah. have Jenny books. But it was quite, you know, limiting. In yeah, some yeah, I can see that. What have you brought for us? I've got a couple of books here, one of which was actually published at the end of last year. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't sure that I was going to like it, but it's by Simon Barnes, who writes for the RSPB magazine and other places. Well, he's uh, actually a sports writer. Uh, yeah, he writes no, about football. Probably, yeah. oh. But he's a really keen bird watcher although he would say erroneously that he is a bad bird watcher okay and that's what this book is called it's how to be a bad bird watcher and it's brilliant and i think the subtitle to the book says it all which says to the greater glory of life and it's really about how first of all you don't have to be fantastic at identifying birds to appreciate them that's true you can just see a bird, and as he, as he says, just inside here, he says, if you look out of the window and you see a bird and you enjoy it, then you are a bad bird watcher. That is my mm. sort of bird watching, Rich. Mm. Yeah, makes perfect Not sense. Not too technical. No, that's right. Well, it certainly doesn't have to be, but I actually think that this is a book that if you read it cover to cover, mm. 
would get anybody more interested and possibly encourage them to be a bit more technical. Mm. So it's not a field guide. It's a book about how to watch birds, different places you can watch birds. It's about just the joy of finding pleasure in birds. And if that means that you sit in a car one day waiting for somebody Mm. and they don't turn up for half an hour, but you happen to be watching the house sparrows outside or watching a blackbird feeding on a bush or something like that, and it gives you pleasure, then it's something that's a really important thing in your life. Is it similar to a field guide then? No. Okay. Not at all. Um, it certainly doesn't say look out for the second feather on this wing and that, the colour of it and whatever. <laughs> I've recently been doing my best to identify some tits in my garden, which were either marsh tits or willow tits. Mm-hmm. And anybody who knows those two birds will know that they are difficult to tell apart. His attitude to that will be, doesn't matter doesn't matter which they are. If you think they're beautiful and your heart lifts when you see them because they're so beautiful, then great. Why do you need to know what they are? You said I made a nice Christmas present. Who would you give it to? The cover looks young to me. It does look young. I, I would think anybody who just enjoys the outdoors, maybe enjoys gardening, likes to see the robin in the garden, perhaps would like to know a little bit more about it, but is a bit scared by the image of the bird watcher in the bobble hat that you get in all the papers and, you know, twitchers and so on. I mean, if you've ever read Bill Oddie's Little Black Bird Book, as it's called, I don't know if you've read that, that is fantastic. That is probably the best book ever written about bird watching. It is hilarious, absolutely hilarious. This comes a good second in my mind to that book because it doesn't make fun of bird watching, which Bill Oddie's book does in a, a really nice way. It tells you it's okay to be a bird watcher that you don't have to wear a bobble hat. You don't have to go running off through a marsh in trainers without your wellies on and get soaking wet because there's a special bird you want to see. It's saying that all birds are special. And there's now a companion to that book. He's actually just published a second book, which is called A Bad Bird Watcher's Companion, which I've also just read and I think is fantastic. This is subtitled A Personal Introduction to Britain's 50 Most Obvious Birds. And it's for anyone who doesn't want to get a field guide out and think, you know, has that got a black shiny head or a black dull head? Which is what I've been doing with my willow tit and my marsh tit. Here's a good example on the page about swifts. This is his concession to how to identify a swift. Where to look? Sky. When to look? Late spring to midsummer. What to look for? Flying scythe. What to listen for? Mad screaming. And that just tells you exactly that it's a swift. Perfect. Couldn't be anything else. What more do you need to know? Is that photos or pickies? Or? There are lovely little line drawings which just catch the essence of a bird so fantastically. They're by somebody called Peter Partington, who I actually don't know. But they're just great. A bit of a colour wash, a few lines, but there you've got the bird exactly. So it really catches what people say is the jizz of a bird, just Mm. how it sits, whether its head looks up or down. Really, really great. I think that would be a good Christmas present for my son, actually, Mm. who likes to pretend he's got no interest in birds whatsoever because it's not very cool. No, it's not cool. But he knows his birds quite well. He Mm. just keeps quiet about it. And I think he could read that behind closed doors. But 
Richard, we better introduce Jenny to the chocolate rating. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. you better have yes. yeah, your, your chocolate yeah. rating. As a woman, she will understand this, I'm quite sure. Yeah, yeah. I understand anything to do with chocolate. I thought you would, Jen. So, chocolate rating, obviously, one to five. One is poor, five is fantastic. Starts off with number one, Hershey's. Oh, a bit salty. Yeah. Yuck, yuck. Nestle's. Mm-hmm. Bit grainy, Very I always good, think. Yeah. Cadbury's. Average, good, solid company. Lovely, tasty. Yeah, but good. moving on to something more exciting. Number four, Galaxy. Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Oh, oh, oh. No, anything, one of my favourites. Yeah. Yeah. Anything you can think of better than number four, Galaxy? Uh, it would have to be Belgian chocolate, I think. Ah, see! <laughs> <laughs> what did I tell you? They're very good. Yeah, yeah. Milka. Yeah. Milka. It could be Swiss, uh, but I don't know. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, I like lint. Yeah. That's yeah. really nice, extra fine. Yes. Lovely. So on a rating, a chocolate rating, how would you rate these? Books? Oh, Belgian. Really? Without, I think they're great books. And I think they do a lot to make bird watching seem like just a great pastime and not something that, as I say, strange people in bobble hats do. Everybody does it. We all look at the birds as they fly past the window. It tells you a lot about birds that's interesting without it being really sort of nerdy, if you know what I mean. I'd actually give those Belgian seashells. Five and a half. Just a minute. Seashells, I, I mean... Seashells don't come into it. They oh. can't, I'm sorry, but they can't because they're filled with praline, aren't they? Praline's lovely. Yes, Nuts. but it's a waste of chocolate space. <laughs> okay, we'll go with just the, the Belgian oh, chocolate. I'll then. give you seashells. Yeah. Thank you for coming in. You're very welcome. Just before Farmer Phil comes rushing in with the answers to those crucial questions we asked him last week, like... Did he take over the farm? <laughs> we know he did. <laughs> I know we know he did. And we've got time for the competition. We've got A Greener Life by Clarissa Dixon-Wright and Johnny Scott. And it's up for grabs at the end of November if you can answer the following question, Rich. Which is, what colour are the South Devon cows that Farmer Phil talked about in the fifth podcast that we did? If you know the answer to that, write in to heather at wigglywigglers.co.uk Tell us your answer, tell us what you think, and we'll draw it out at the end of November. Here he is. It's Phil with those answers. Welcome, Farmer Phil. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm pleased to say I did take the farm over. (laughs) Oh, yippee! Yeah, brilliant. So so how many years have you been farming it on your own now? Three. Three years? Yeah. And do you feel like, you know, you're completely in control? No, not at all. (laughs) But we need to go back in time to think about the history of the farm to bring it up to date. That's right. It's interesting, isn't it? There are some really old buildings on this site. The Wiggler's office is, is really old and it's been converted to keep all our slot under control. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but how old is that building, do you think, Phil? It's difficult to say. Our neighbour's farm, they've got a 13th century farmhouse. Right. And it would be reasonable to think that all this area was farmed in one form or another but we know very little about what was here before this house was. And this house was built in about 1750. The only indication we do have is that I've got photographs dating from the 30s when there were several large timber frame barns within the farmyard and they would date to some time previous to 1700. And that would indicate that it was quite a significant farm even in those days. Sadly, post-war development in agriculture meant that nice timber frame barns got taken down for firewood, probably, 
A yeah. lot of people would have worked here, though, wouldn't they? You know, a lot more than now. It was a, it was a community venture. It was a, a place oh. that you lived and worked. People used to live up in our attic. That's you? right. I mean, the, the attic used to be um, what was called a bothy, so that the house mm-hmm. would have had two staircases. You'd got the main staircase for the family living in the house, Marvelous. and yeah. the, the back <laughs> staircase, and you could get up to the bothy that way. Right. But there were no frills up there. There no. were windows, but they'd got no glass or anything like that. They were just open straight out into the fresh air. Within living memory, this farm used to employ something over 20 people. And that was for half the acreage that it is now. Yeah. So, um, yes, times have changed. Times have changed. No big tractors in those days. No. Um, we've sides. got a photo of the first combine harvester in Herefordshire, which was on this farm. Oh, wow. And that was combining up on the top of Stockley Hill, which was actually a piece of land that was cleared for the first time after the war. Right. And there are photos of them clearing that. It was just scrub and... I think my dad did that, didn't he? I think he was probably yeah. well involved he with that. He bulldozed it all out. Yeah, 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 yeah. Needed food, and that's the way it was. Ploughed a lot yeah, of the difficult ground with um, traction engines because it was too steep to plough with horses, but with a traction engine you could plough very steep ground by parking an engine at the top and an engine at the bottom, and you winched the plough between them. Right. And so that the need for food was to some extent supplied by working land that wouldn't otherwise ever have been worked. Right. There's always been a diversity on the farm, though, hasn't there? I mean, you spoke about expanding the farm, and many farmers go into agri-industry. You know, I'm thinking of things like chickens, you know, billions of them. And, but there's always been a real diversity on this farm. Tell us about the lime kiln. Well, the terrain of the farm is such that it's always going to be mixed farming. You're, you're never going to have just arable or just livestock. And realistically, the idea is that you grow the crops at least in part, to feed the livestock during the winter. Right. And that's still true today. We've probably got more arable in relation to to the livestock than they had then. But transport was difficult years ago, so that when they wanted to build a shed or a house, you went and dug the clay to make the bricks, and you fired the lime to make the mortar. It was actually easier to bring the limestone to the lime kiln and fire it on site, effectively, than it was to cart the the timber, which was the fuel for the lime kiln, mm. to where the limestone was. So right, it's, right. it's quite interesting, that, and along this valley there are lime kilns dotted along it. Yeah, sure. About 100 years ago, if you could build a chimney, then you automatically were able to build a house. Right. And so Jodie's house, cool. Jodie who works here where I used to live, whoever used to live there worked at Lower Blakemere Farm. Right. And so every night he took home in his bait bag some bricks from here and so he managed to build a chimney and that was it he was then able to build the house so the house that jody lives in is stolen from here so we want it back (laughs) worse than that rich he took all the bits of timber to to build the house from here but that meant that he could only take bits that he could carry on his bicycle right right. and in jody's house you're hard pushed to find any piece of timber longer than about six foot long (laughs) Because all the bricks were stolen, he put them on their end. So, <laughs> so <laughs> there's no insulation. And because the, he was very tight in terms of the, the slates on the roof, he just spread them out and did it every other. Oh. <laughs> no way. Do you think that's devalued Jody's house? Okay. <laughs> Sorry, Joe. a good architectural <laughs> survey, are we? Yeah, that'll sound like hot cake. <laughs> 
Some yeah. of the other interesting things they did, of course, in the 1700s, they didn't have fridges and things like that. And we've got a field which is currently called the lawns. Oh, right. But part of it used to be called the ice house coppice. And the reason was that ice houses were a brick-lined hole in the ground somewhere near a pond. And what they used to do was when the pond froze, they'd get all the ice off the pond and put it in the hole along with the meat. And then they'd seal the top and they could keep the meat for longer into the year, keeping it cold like that. And right. that was an ice house. Right. Similarly, we've got a field called the Brickle Clump Coppice. Right. And that's where all the holes were that they dug the clay to make the bricks out of. So the house that we're in now, doing this podcast from, was this made from the bricks that were handmade on the land? Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Every and brick would have been made sort of within 500 yards of here. And the lime mortar between the bricks that would have been that would have got come from, from the burning the of the lime up by the wood okay. and it was built by the wood because it used large quantities of timber right. so that they would cut the timber to slake the lime to yeah. produce the mortar good yeah. local source in there Rich fantastic isn't it yeah. it's a set of Preston doesn't it for other wiggly stuff <laughs> yes that was great Phil thanks very much for that it's really interesting stuff so I think we should save ourselves and talk a little bit more about it in the next episode plenty of history to go at cheers Phil From father to son, wiggle on, Monty! It's Monty's Wormcast. The Wiggly Wormcast podcast by Monty. A weekly fact on worms. Many famous people have been interested in worms for a long time. Cleopatra declared earthworms sacred. Charles Darwin studied earthworms for 39 years. Darwin said it may be doubted whether there are many other animals in the world which have played so important a part in the history of the world than the earthworm. There we are. Bye. That was it. (laughs) (laughs) I thought we were going to make it more interesting. Obviously not. He said the less. (laughs) Better. If that's the case, that was as good as it's going to get.